I'll be reading from Psalm 42, which is God's record of the heart cry of the persecuted church and uh, their hurt and how God identifies with them. Psalm 42, reading verses 9 through 11. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Amen. Father God, I thank you for including the heart cry of hurting people, that you understand our hurts and our pains, and that you have even allowed us to cry these hurts and pains out to you. And I pray that as we dig into this uh, communion meditation, that uh, you would quicken to our hearts the reality of our being united with the persecuted church, that we might be uh, prayer warriors on their behalf. And I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You probably are familiar with the terrorist attack against Christians in Sri Lanka this past spring, where there were over 300 killed, um, over 500 that were uh, wounded. And uh, I read back then a newspaper report that stated, Christians are shocked. The question on everyone's lips is, why did this happen? People were confused. They didn't understand why churches were being targeted. And given the peace-loving nature of those Christians, the fact they were involved in mercy ministries, helping the poor, giving money, uh, helping the hurting in many different ways, people wondered, they're no threat to anybody. Why on earth would they be uh, persecuted? They didn't understand why the world would hate them enough to kill them. And there are three similar why questions in this paragraph that we just read from Psalm 42 that I think really uncover the confusion and the hurt that the persecuted church frequently experiences. But since they are inspired why questions, I think they show God's uh, identification with our hurt and confusion as well. He takes sympathy for us, he cares for us, and basically he does not make us suffer in silence. Uh, he allows us to bring our hurts and confusions to him. So the first question is basically, why does God allow this? He asks God, why have you forgotten me? Now, of course, God doesn't forget his people. He had not forgotten the persecution of this son of Korah. But when even Jesus can say on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? It shows that there are some things that are too difficult for our minds to process. We are left trusting, but we can express our confusion, our whys to God. Why does God not just destroy the persecutors and uh, bring relief to his church? He could obviously do so, and there are some people who have tried to bring academic answers to uh, this question. Uh, people have said, well, maybe they haven't prayed the imprecatory psalms, uh, or maybe 
the descendants of these persecutors are elect, and if God were to destroy them, then he would destroy his purposes of saving their descendants. Uh, or the common refrain, the uh, blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. There are many answers academically that we could give that might possibly be answers for any given situation. But even with these uh, answers, we still can feel abandoned in the process. And it's true, we may realize our feelings are utterly, utterly unreliable, but in verse 1, the son of Korah at least feels distant from God. And the very fact that God includes this in the Bible shows God cares about our feelings. As irrational as our feelings sometimes are, he cares about our feelings. This persecuted son of Korah has dryness in verse 2, has tears in verse 3, is lonely in verse 4. And as you go through the whole psalm, you realize that these unreliable emotions are causing him to cry out, Why? Why, Lord? The Bible does not ignore our emotions. Instead, it helps us to resolve our emotions in a godly way. I counted a couple hundred similar why questions in the Bible, and interestingly, most of these why questions never received an answer. And I think it's deliberately written that way uh, to show us that even when we cannot know the reasons for those, those belong in the secret counsels of God, we can know with an absolute certainty that God cares. He cares enough for uh, him to record prayers where we can cry out our anguish. We can cry out our, our pain. The Lord's table is God's pledge to us that despite the confusion, despite the fact we don't always know the answers to our why questions, we can have an absolute certainty that if God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, the enemy can take away our life, but they cannot, they can rob us of our possessions, but they cannot take away God, our salvation, our eternal glory. And sometimes we have to process these kinds of ideas over and over again to resolve those emotions. The second why question can be summed up in the words, why do our persecutors hate us? This too is puzzling. He asks, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? And that why springs from the fact that their hatred makes no sense. They hate Christians when Christians don't deserve the hatred. As Jesus said, they hate me without a cause. I think we need to think through that bit of theology. They hate me without a cause. If there is no cause for their hatred, at least no cause in us, then why the hatred? That, that's the puzzling thing. It certainly does not benefit our persecutors. Uh, we get a hint of an answer in Acts 9 when Jesus asked Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul probably just thought he was persecuting them, but why are you persecuting me? It is ultimately Christ whom the persecutors hate. And the more clearly Christ is seen in the church, the more hot the persecution becomes against that church as demons rile them up. Because ultimately the hatred is a demonic hatred that makes no sense. I'll just give you one example from long ago. It makes absolutely no sense for France 
during the time of the Reformation to kill and to chase out of their country over a million people. In fact, this was the cream of the crop of scientists and artists and architects and artisans and scholars and doctors from many, many different areas of life, the cream of the crop, were either killed or kicked out of France. And France suffered economically for the next 100 years from this loss, and they also suffered spiritually to the degree that it led to the bloodbath in the, in the French Revolution. But you see, when demons are the ones who are stirring up this anger in other people, the people don't care. Uh, it's an irrational hatred. Paul said, ultimately, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against demonic spiritual powers that move the children of Satan. So in one sense, we really ought not to be surprised that the world hates believers. Jesus guaranteed that this would be the case in John 15. He said, if they hated me, they will hate you. The more clearly we identify with Christ, the more that hatred will rise up. And as you look through the world's hatred for the church in John 15, the more we realize it is demonically driven. And when we come to the Lord's table, what we are doing week by week is we are saying, I break off all fellowship, all identity with Satan and what Satan's kingdom stands for, and I commit myself to Christ and all that his kingdom stands for. And persecution many times will heighten the antithesis between those two kingdoms. The third question is basically, why am I troubled by this? I'm a child of God, I shouldn't be troubled, but I am. Why? Several times in this psalm, he expresses puzzlement over why his heart is so discouraged and so depressed. He had every reason for joy. As you read this psalm, you realize he does not at all doubt that God is good, that God is sovereign, that God is uh, faithful. Uh, he does not at all doubt God's wisdom or God's love for him. But he keeps asking himself, so why then am I uh, bothered? Why do I feel bad? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? In effect, he was preaching to himself, shaking himself out of his negative thinking and saying, cut it out. I've I got to quit thinking negatively. And he goes on to say, hope in God. He's preaching to himself, hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. So even though the Lord's table showcases the irrational hatred that the world had for Jesus in the first century, and even though it does not promise ultimate answers this side of eternity, it calls us to trust. It calls us to trust Christ, to commit ourselves to him, to force ourselves to stop thinking the negative thoughts that keep coming into our minds. We have this tendency to think negative thoughts, to start praising God, and to be faithful even unto death. When we realize that our life is hidden in Christ with God, um, we have every reason for joy. Uh, but if you lack joy this morning, I would encourage you to make your participation in the Lord's table your commitment to fight for joy. Uh, to believe despite your doubts, to commit yourself to him despite your feelings. Your spirit must be in charge of your feelings so that with your whole being, you submit yourself in the sacrament of the Lord God. And the other thing I would encourage you to do as you come to this table is to remember the very fact that of your union and communion with Jesus guarantees also your union and communion with the church worldwide, whether they're in 
China, uh, Sri Lanka, Saudi Arabia, doesn't matter where they are. You are united to them, as Rodney so clearly stated earlier. So let's commit ourselves to praying for them. Father God, we come to you. We come to you thankful for your blessings. Even the fact that we are enabled to suffer for your sake should be treated as a blessing, as a privilege, if it is suffering for you instead of suffering for our own sins. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us joy in the midst of tribulation, a supernatural joy that cannot be explained from a human perspective, but that simply flows from your throne, that you would give to the believers in these persecuted countries a supernatural joy in you, that you would sustain them. And I do pray as well for your holy wrath and jealousy to be stirred up on behalf of your bride. Uh, if it is a situation where you have not because you ask not, Father, as our church prays this morning, continues to commit ourselves to praying for the persecuted church, that you would turn things around and that you would cause Islam and atheism and Buddhism and Hinduism to fall to the ground and these idols to be cast down, that your rod of iron would smash the strongholds that are keeping people from understanding the purposes of your grace. And we pray in the meantime that we ourselves would grow in appreciation for all that you have done for us. This meal that we are entering into right now is such a wonderful testimony of your grace and provision. And so we pray, Father, that our hearts would be cheered, that you would uh, shake us out of our reverie and uh, uh, enable us, Father, to uh, enter into the joy of the Lord, which Jesus purchased for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.